Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and in the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, already know. a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, Gangster Rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're tuned into The Biz Tape, your all things music business and media podcast. Welcome to another episode of Deep Cut, where we expand and go into depth upon the origin, history, and impact of a certain music and media topic. My name is Joe Wazleski, and with me is my co-host, Colin McKay. Doing well. How are you, Joe? I'm doing great, man. <laughs> we're sitting here, we're, we're camped out. Staying warm while we're watching this uh, snowpocalypse happening outside. Every year. Yeah, and we're just uh, we're kind of just buckling down and getting into a lot of cool work coming up. Yeah, but no, uh, good Colin, to be what, super good. Yeah, what are, <laughs> what are we learning today? Where are you going to teach me? Uh, let's learn about the Grammys, Joe. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Brought to you by the letter G. Out of the big four of the EGOT Awards, the letter G usually kicks off the season at the end of January, that being the Grammys, although this year due to COVID has been postponed to March. The award is highly coveted while also being highly despised, and a win and even a nomination can help an artist excel in their career with more sales and opportunities. The problem is, is the system of getting nominated or winning is confusingly bureaucratic and can involve movement outside the Grammy system. Who gets snubbed and why can be as big a mystery as that of the Loch Ness Monster or Bermuda Triangle. Mm. So today, <laughs> let's take a deep cut into the Grammys, how it started, how it works, and what's going on today. So basically, I want to preface this before I start out. Um, we are recording this before the 2021 Grammys, about yes. a month before. So We're in case try something... to see the future, though. Right. In case something wild happens, and like you're like, why didn't we talk about this? That's why. Uh, but I'm going to give you a lot of information that's going to stay the same. So it's pretty much going to be very informative in that, in case you want to learn how it all happened. So let's start from the beginning. The Grammys came out of the rules of the Hollywood Walk of Fame, believe it or not, hmm. and the addition of additional stars. Seen in countless media, the Hollywood Walk of Fame would award inductees with a concrete concrete star with their name on it on Hollywood Boulevard on the sidewalk to immortalize them. This is the thing where, you know, you put your hands in the concrete and usually, you know, like smiling up. Like, yeah, it's the really awkward photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that it's actually, the idea of it originally came up in 1953. It's very old. And so many music industry professionals, though, realized one problem is that a lot of the stars of their business were not qualified to get a star at all. And the process was really slow. Only eight stars were even unveiled until 1958, which is five years after they were originally conceived. Wow. 
So basically, we had to come up with how are we going to recognize these people? So a couple music industry talents made the National Academy of Recording Arts and Science, or NARIS, which was formed in 1957. And this is by Jesse Kay from MGM Records, Lloyd Dunn and Richard Jones from Capitol Records, Sonny Bjork and Milt Gapler from Decca Records, RCA Records, Dennis Farron and Alex Strodal, Paul Weston and Doris Day from Columbia Records. A couple very famous names in there yeah. if you haven't picked you, up. You nailed those names, by the way. I know. I just want to say. Um, so they sought out basically to create an award to honor the best of music. And this one involved getting many professionals to join their organization for from around the United States to help decide what this award would be and who would receive it. So Naris would be organized into chapters in each individual city, which I'll get into later. So Paul Weston, one of the founders, but also the head of the LA chapter of Naris, was quoted in the Ocul- this is a hard one, Ocula Star Banner a month before the first award show, stating how there have been many attempts in the past to create such an event, but it, they had all been tried half-hearted. And Naris had been able to create a New York chapter and in the process had already made a Memphis and Chicago chapter, which all exist today. Funny enough, Weston, which Joe, you're going to die of this, offered 25 albums <laughs> to anyone who would send in the name for their award into the banner for the name <laughs> of the award. The article author gave my personal favorite a disky, <laughs> but Naris considered many, including an Eddie, after the invention of the phonograph, Thomas Edison. But Naris would eventually settle on what we all know today, a Grammy, as a tribute to Emil Ber- Berliner's gramophone. I'm really glad they didn't go with Disky. <laughs> I, you know, I kind of want it though. <laughs> it would be really funny, but I feel like after 60 years of saying Disky, we would all make fun of it. Which <laughs> to go into the award itself and kind of go out of the timeline for a second, uh, the award itself is actually made by one company and has always been made by one company, even though their name has changed. And their name is Billings Artworks in Ridgeway, Colorado, and they are originally made by Bob Graves, who was the next door neighbor. To, son, to the son of that household, John Billings, who would eventually apprentice under Graves and take over the business in 1983 after Graves' death. And Billings would even re- redesign the Grammys in 1991, making them bigger bigger and sturdier with the trademark zinc alloy called Grammium. <laughs> it sounds like it's, something you would defeat Superman with. Yeah, but, it sounds like, you know, like the the Avatar movie, like the Unobtainium. Right, exactly. Now we have Granium. <laughs> exactly. Or uh, Grammium. Enough of it will kill Superman. Anyway, almost all the Grammys seen award, like awarded, like when they give them to artists, are not the real ones. They're called stunt Grammys, and they actually are a very long process. Which they have a really great website on that at Billings Artwork if you want to see how they're made. And it's way more complicated than you think. Wow, that's um, crazy. I guess that makes sense if in case they drop. Oh, it's it. a beautiful looking award, which makes it even funnier. What happens? Do they to get to them. keep the stunt Grammy? No. Oh damn! They send them to them later. That. You could the do real so many pranks later. with that. Yeah. <laughs> so after going back to the timeline, after more deliberation in creating the foundation of Naris, the first Grammys Awards would take place on May 4th, 1959, honoring the music of 1958. And it took place in two different venues in the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, California, and the Park Sheraton Hotel in New York City. And this multiple venue thing would actually be normal until the 13th Grammys in 1971, which I'll get to specifically that one later, with 28 categories, which is way lower than the eventual Grammys would become at their max and even today. So being the first Grammys, they had to establish a lot of things. And one of the things they established was the general field category, which is generally considered the highest honors in the award show by most as this category has no genre restrictions. Three out of the four big general field awards existed at the first Grammys. For the uninitiated, the big four Grammy field categories are Song of the Year, Record of the Year, Album of the Year, and Best New Artist. And the last two of Album and Best New Artist are are pretty self-explanatory. Like, that makes sense just saying it. But you might be confused if you're just hearing Song of the Year and Record of the Year. What's the difference? Here's the difference. Song of the Year judges the songwriting while Record of the Year judges the actual performance of the performing artist. Just to clarify, because there, I've seen a lot does of people... That mean, does that mean the performance in the record itself? Correct. Okay. So, because everything that the Grammys does is pre-recorded or material, so the recording industry, like, you will have to, you know, they're judging what you put on whatever product you're putting out, a CD in the time, a disc, you know, any of that. Gotcha. So, moving back to the first Grammys, Song and Record of the Year, fun fact you can pull out on trivia, went to Nell Blue, De Pinto, De Blue Volare, 
by Domenico <laughs> Modillo. Damn. Uh, which is the only foreign music song to ever win record of the year in the Grammys history to date. Really? Yep. Wow. And is actually a third place winner of the 1958 Eurovision contest, which if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our first deep dive about Eurovision, the world's longest running annual TV music competition show, cross promo <laughs> baby. Anyway, nice, nice transition. I know. Yeah, I know you'd love that. Okay. So then we have uh, album of the year, which went to the music from Peter Gunn by Henry Mancini, meaning that best new artist was left out until the second award show. And that was given to Bobby Darren. Um, on the last note of the first Grammys, because I knew, Joe, you would die of this specifically, uh, the Grammys have always been hilariously bad at creating marketable names for their awards that yeah. you know people are going to plaster everywhere on advertising. And the first Grammys is no exception. So I had to note, eventually <laughs> what would become Best Instrumental Composition two years later in 1960 was named Best Musical Composition First Recorded and Released in 1958 Over Five-Minute Duration. Oh my God. And you can see why they changed the title. Can you imagine like getting a bus like poster on that? I felt bad for the guy going. making the Grammys. He has to fit all those words on there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, the graphic designer was stressing. That right. Way. Exactly. Uh, but basically I'm going to go through really fast now, kind of the history of it all the way up till now, but I'm not going to go through every Grammys. So whoever's going to, you know, is like, is he going to do this? No, don't worry. But I'm going to start at the second Grammys just to warn you, but I want to put that in because people are going to think I'm going to first second third no so the second grammys was actually uh, the first to be televised but importantly it was not live it was pre-recorded and aired on nbc on the nbc sunday showcase which was hosted by meredith wilson who wrote the broadway musical the music man and features performances from likes such as classical pianist van Clyburn, comedian shelly berman nat king cole bobby darren folk singer jimmy driftwood duke ellington ella fitzgerald trumpeter jonah jonas the kingston trio and the mormon tab tabernacle choir stacked which the grammys even pro provides and i think so is an insane range of genres to be played at the grammys yeah uh and i also love to think about as a comedian having a 10 minute set at the grammys which i guess is what the host does now but literally like if we were like here's mike berbiglia is gonna get up here for 10 minutes so it's like whoa <laughs> just riff yeah <laughs> also strange the second grammys took place the same year as the first Grammys Whoa. in 1959. Wait, how does that work? I'll get to that. Just five months after the first Grammys in November to nom to honor the music of 1959. Now, how do you honor a year that hasn't completed yet with two more months? I do not know. <laughs> but this caused no Grammy Awards to actually happen in 1960 as the third Grammys uh, learned from the second Grammys and wait until 1961 to celebrate the full year of 1960. Whoa. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I, I just feel like it, it's such a rush. Like I get that they're, you know, they're probably starting out and right. wanting to really promote the new brand. Right. Right. <laughs> but like if it's a year award, it's so funny. I don't they're know. They're just why. like, forget about the last one. For right. Me. Just keep, we're going to do it. Anyway, moving forward, the Grammys would actually not be broadcast live until 1971, which is also the last of the EGOT awards to even be broadcast live. And also CMA started live broadcasts a few years earlier. And this would be the 13th Grammys, Grammys hosted by Andy Williams, who hosted this and the next six Grammys, making him the most, uh, like the most to ever host a Grammys at seven, which is nuts to me. Damn. The other two behind him are John Denver at six and LL Cool J at five, yeah. which is a strange combination of people to say in a sentence. But here we are. Also at that Grammys, Paul Simon became the first person ever to win all four general field categories with Joe's favorite bridge over troubled water yes. at the 13th Grammys, <laughs> which if you're interested who else won all four of the general field categories, it's a very short list. Uh, Carol King won the year later with all four. And then it goes Christopher cross in 1981, Eric Clapton in 1993, Dixie chicks in 2007, Adele won twice in 2012 and 2017, Bruno Mars in 2018 and Billie Eilish in 2020. It's a very exclusive of club yeah so this was also the beginning of the grammys being at one location obviously for filming because that's what they needed to do um one irregularity though was the 15th grammys was actually held in nashville at the tennessee theater wow and it's the only time since because new york and la have always been where it is after that yeah it's weird to think about 
We should do it this year. Right. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> this also began the Grammys being broadcast via CBS, and it will still be broadcast via CBS till 2026. Mm. Um, rock was officially recognized as a genre category in 1980. A little late, but, you know, rock bands were winning general field categories still, like the Beatles, for instance, in the 60s. Um, also, tragically, way too late is the best disco recording cate- uh, category, which started in the year 1980. <laughs> and this would never be given again. Yeah. I mean, for because... reasons that are very obvious, including the decline of the genre and the disco demolition event a year earlier. Yeah. If you haven't seen that video, it's insane. Yeah. Um, rap was recognized as a category in 1989, but. It only had one award, which was for best rap performance, which you will die at if you're a you know big rap fan, which I'm not joking, is Parents Just Don't Understand by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the French and the Fresh Prince, aka Will Smith. <laughs> Man. <laughs> it's not but, a bad song. I listened to it before, but I just thought that'd be funny if you were like, Man, when do we get in? And this is the song this is the song that yeah. we'll go down in history. Well, I you know, DJ Jazzy Jeff is very historic. I yeah. mean he's a historic DJ and that kind of makes sense. But I think and Will Smith at the time, big, huge, big, and huge. then got even bigger. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny to make fun of now. Also interesting is uh, the song Wild Wild West is used in is was against that song in 1989, which would eventually be used to sample for Will Smith Wild Wild West in the Wild Wild West movie with the same credit from the Whoa. guy. Yeah. Isn't that weird? <laughs> so moving on. Inception. In, in 1997, the year of our, the year I was born. Anyway, Neris established Laris, which is the Latin Academy of Recording and Sciences. As Britannica writes, the requirements are a recording must be released anywhere in the world, but it may be, re- but it must be recorded in Spanish or Portuguese between July 1st of the previous year and July 30th of the award year. And the first Latin Grammy or June the 30th. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. And the first Latin Grammy award ceremony was staged in Los Angeles in 2000 with Carlos Santana and Shakira among the many winners. Nice. So start off strong. So we're going to go into how it works now because this is a good point uh, to go into that before I go into kind of like, just like more of the general history because it would it's going to make a lot more sense if i do it this way so first off most people just refer to neris as the recording academy or the academy not to be confused with the oscars uh and the point of this is kind of like you might see people say like oh neris of the recording academy but the academy itself really does not like to use the term Naris anymore. And I can't find when they switch kind of branding. I even went on the way yeah. back machine. I tried a bunch of different things. So just an important to note is that they're kind of interchangeable, same difference. And I don't think they've officially changed their name. They haven't done a press release or anything like that, that I can find, but just in so if you're talking to somebody and they're like Naris recording Academy. Yeah. I mean, I could see it being kind of awkward on skate on stage being like, thank you to my producer. Thank you to, all my uh the my national academy friends. recording yeah thank you to naris right <laughs> so that's kind of it's they do not use that term anymore basically yeah. for some reason uh moving to voting the academy has thousands of voting members and i can't get an exact number but i've seen an estimate of twelve thousand members are able to vote out of the twenty two thousand last year in 2020 according to a couple sources i uh, can't verify that completely but i've seen that statistic a lot Uh, To be a member, you have to be selected and apply. And depending on the category of member you are, you have to provide different requirements and information for your application in a process known as peer review, which I'll get to in a minute. And the Recording Academy's peer review panel views these applications in the spring each year. And by, by July 9th of that year, they will send notice if you're selected. So there's three types of members. You're either a professional member, a voting member, or a Grammy U member. The voting members are the ones that get the vote surprise yes. uh, and the other two are music industry professionals who mostly don't deal directly with music these are like administration kind of people mostly and then you have a uh, grammy u members which is a program for young college students interested in going into music um, all three of them can use the full services of the recording academy except one exception such as the philanthropic networking and mentoring programs and i gotta note this right here is the academy has a heavy philanthropic side it's a nonprofit itself and runs many other nonprofits, including the most notable which is music cares and that provides a lot of different financial and other services to struggling musicians yeah so from the grammys itself i'm going to focus more on the voting members but the other members kind of come back in because obviously you want to know how the grammys go all 
all the way through the process of getting a record. So voting membership is for performers, songwriters, producers, engineers, instrumentalists, and other creators currently working in the recording industry. So these consist of people who directly work with the music, and these applicants have to provide, one, two strong recommendations from music industry peers, to proof of a primary career focus in music, including but not limited to active marketing, promotions, awards, and honors, establish online presence, uh, and there's a bunch of ways of proving that. Press such as interviews, highlights, uh, professional support system, manager, booking agent, publish this. Uh, so you got to prove a lot of things, uh, but you can use a number of ways to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and then three, which is probably the most daunting, is you have to have 12 commercial, commercially distributed verifiable credits in a single creative profession. At least one of these has to be a credit from the previous five years. So you either come out with a like a full length album or a couple of EPs or something like that and then get them registered. And, right. And, and what's important about that is you have to have the same profession on it. You can't okay. be like producer, engineer, songwriter. You know what I mean? Like you have to have 12 identical credits and one in the last year of the one thing to kind of prove. And then on top of that, you have to have recommendations and show all this stuff. So it's kind of a hard process. Yeah. Um, if you were selected, then you just have to pay your member dues of a hundred dollars. And then, uh, let's move to the pipeline of voting. And I'm going to add the Grammys has a very nice graphic that I'm going to link with all the sources below. And I'll be sure to like highlight that out on the actual document. But if you get confused when I'm saying the graphic will get really important and help you a lot, understand what's going on through this process. Um, Joe, you're just, just like going to bear with me, you know, um, <laughs> so uh, I'm strapping in for the ride. <laughs> so the first thing the Academy does, we're talking about like beginning of the process is the Academy reviews the rules and decides what they want to update and what they want to leave the same. And this is stuff like the categories of awards, adding or taking away awards, updating the descriptions or qualifications in an award, everything in between, such as a minimum album time length to be considered an album or the qualification window of submissions. And the board of trustees is the one that has the final say on these changes. And these usually come from specific committees of members who propose rule changes. So we got to get the rules together. Once these are tweaked, the Academy then begins the process of ranking in all these submissions. And these submissions come from voting, the professional members I talked about before, and registered media companies, which are basically kind of like a membership for an organization. And most of these are music business organizations like a record label, a distribution company, and management firms. Other And so they submit it, those three groups, other than fitting the category and genre requirements, these members and companies can submit recordings that fit these rules. Uh, the recordings are generally distributed, defined as nationwide release of a recording via brick-and-mortar stores, third-party online retailers, or applicable digital streaming services. Mm -hmm. Important to note is that the streaming service had to exist in the U.S. for one year at the date of the submission deadline. So I can't make like ColinMcCaySTreaming.com, put my album on it and go, it's national, yeah. you know? <laughs> Um, then it has to have an ISCR, which is an international standing recording code. If you don't know what that is, basically it's used to identify a, a particular recording, usually used in like confirming rights and seeing when recordings were played. It Very also standard. uses, isn't it used in uh, like Shazam? And yeah, like Siri and stuff that's like how that. they log it basically. Yep. So like they say that this number recording code, you know, this recording code was played 5,000 times or yeah. something. That's how they figure out money for stuff like that. So that makes sense. You know, you guys want to make sure that people are getting money correctly in the pipeline and everything. Uh, you have to have, this is an interesting one. You have to have comparable quality to 44.1 K 16 bit audio, AKA CD quality. Basically, if you are an engineer like me and you have to send them the original file, the product, aka CD or streaming link, and have all the correct credits on the metadata and a firm release date, pretty much. Um, and then it has to be submitted in the submission eligibility window, which for the 2021 Grammys was from September 1st, 2019 to August 30th, 31st, 2020. So, so about two months. No, no. year. A like, year. Oh, yeah, oh sorry. Almost, <laughs> you see what I mean? It's like a year. This is what they were talking about earlier how Are they you, celebrate the music of August a year. August isn't after September, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. 
guys, I'm a genius. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So these submissions are made in an online entry process using member accounts or registered media company accounts. And this year's Grammy Awards, there were two windows to start submitting them. You could submit them from July 22nd through July or July, June 22nd, sorry, and July 6th and July 15th through August 3rd, 2020. And that's when you could submit them. If somebody's kind of figuring out something like I did, why is the submission eligibility window passed when you can submit recordings? You see what I mean? Because you could be eligible from like August 3rd through the 31st, but the last date of submission is the 3rd. You see what I mean? So So a lot of people, and a lot of people have missed that date, right? Well, here I tried to, I talked to a couple people, but one of the people I talked to was a member of the Academy and I kind of asked him, I said like, what's going on with this? And like, they told me basically that there could be a couple things with this. It could be just that there's a correction window period because a lot of the stuff they get submitted has wrong information. So correcting metadata and working with a person one-on-one, that's why that period could be there. There's also kind of a thing where we, we were talking about maybe it's kind of standard in streaming services. If you're releasing a really big song to have a delay. So like, you know, your song is going to be released in four weeks. You know what I mean? So it's kind of industry standard is another thing. And then the other thing is that they kind of indicated to me there might be a situation if there's a will, there's a way. Like, you could get it in. You know what I mean? Uh, But admittedly, it's very niche. It would only be, what is that, 30 days of the year? You know what I mean? Or 28. So, like, it's a very niche situation. But, like, it's important to note. It sounds really weird when I say it out loud. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So... Now that these submissions are in, they get sent to specific category screening committees. Now, these committees and the later ones I'm going to talk about are very important for the controversy section of this. So keep these in mind uh, when I get to there. And these people will select the nominees, but not the final nominees. So these committees are members nominated by the many national chapters that are industry experts in their specific category, or at least supposed to be. And although the general field has what I love, 20 music generalists, which is my new like job title, and is selected <laughs> by the trustees of the Recording Academy. These committees are tasked with judging if these submitted recordings actually qualify for what they've been submitted into, and they're not going to be judging them artistically or technically. So the idea is that you have a member who's an expert or maybe a legendary force in a genre of a specific category. Like, let's say like you have a, you know, you're part of the rap committee. Somebody submits a song. Your job is more to see like, Oh, does everything go in a row? Like you have all the technical requirements of 44.1 K, all that kind of stuff. But is it really a rap song? You know what I mean? Like that's kind of their job. Yeah. And so that can get really dicey though, because sometimes these committees get a lot of flack uh, for not picking something or picking them in a different genre that people don't associate with that. You know what I mean? But important to note here is all these committees, you don't know who they are. They're all private and the names are not divulged and they're not really encouraged to divulge their names at all. Because why would you? There's a bunch of fans that are coming after you. So now these committees whittle down the nominees for each section. And this next section starts the first round voting to make the final nominees. And this is a little complicated. And so this process of how the final nominees are picked is different depending on the category, actually. So it can be three things. One, it can be a first round voting by voting members. Two, it can be what picked from what is known as a craft committee or nominations committee. Or three, it can be a combination of both. And so you wonder why people get confused how the Grammys work. It's because it's confusing. <laughs> it's confusing. <laughs> so here, let me define those terms about the committees. A craft committee is a very technically minded committee. And a lot of them are like audio engineers and other technical professionals. And then a nominations committee is pretty synonymous with a screening committee being a group of experts in a genre who are members, but that are further in the pipeline. So they're pretty synonymous, but they're just further down from a screening committee. Yeah. And they're going to judge them based off actual, you know, musical taste and all that stuff as opposed to do you fit in the requirements. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this year's categories so I can explain this because it's easier with actual stuff like that. Again, all these recordings are submitted and then they go through their screening committee before this. 
So for the categories of album notes, packages, historical, uh, remix recording, and immersive audio, the nominees are determined straight by craft committee. And that makes sense. They're very technical categories. You know what I mean? Um, so then the next group is alternative comedy, musical theater, reggae, spoken word, traditional pop, visual media, and the outlier pop. And this is just straight up member voting. And then it's determined just by member voting, which I thought was good. That makes sense. If you're doing popular music, you want to hear what the po- the popular, popular people know. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like that makes sense. Composing, arranging, editing, and producer of the year are a straight member vote. And then they're a craft committee. Again, makes a little more sense. You want to get more people's vote in it, but it's a very technical thing too. It's still engineering. So you want people who are very qualified to talk about this um, and make these decisions. Now, this is where people get riled and I think is kind of un- like, if you're going to get mad at the Grammys for a section of their voting, this is going to be it. Every other category and genre, which for example, are general field, rap, rock, and 13 others. These are made by a member vote and then a nominations committee. So again, the industry genre, like experts to choose that. And this is where the Grammys will get a lot of crap that I'm going to save for now. After this process, that should leave us all with only final nominees, which then it actually gets really simple from there. It's a straight vote by voting members on the final nominees. And this is a tabulated by Deloitte, which is an independent accounting company, which they actually deliver the sealed envelopes the day of the show. Oh yeah. I'm guessing because it's such a high security risk. Right. They need, they count all the votes and then like they just send them out. You know what I mean? Yeah. uh, And then members can actually vote in 15 categories and are kind of, from what I've seen, are discouraged by the Academy from voting in categories. They don't really have any expertise in, but they can vote in 15 categories. Interesting. Um, Again, this process can be rough to follow over audio. So I really encourage you to look at that document that's from the Grammys actual website And then I added some more information through my own research because they're kind of vague about it. But the main takeaway is that there's a big number of small, closed-off, anonymous committees of industry experts in their genre that decide who even gets to be nominated, and every category at least has to go through a screening committee, if not multiple committees. Hmm. So keep that in mind. There's a lot of committees. There is. I'm sensing a lot of committees here. Bureaucratic. Yeah. So... Uh, let's move to the fun part controversies and the rest of the history. Now the dirty deets, the U S <laughs> yeah, I know this thing real tea, as you will TMZ style, but actually, you know, not trashy. Anyway, uh, the U.S. is like, quote unquote, most prestigious music award has a lot of hate. And conveniently for me, I can fill you in on the 2000s to now because a lot of it just has to deal with dealing with controversy. Yeah. So first, not directly at the Grammys, but important to note is some complaints at the Recording Academy. I mentioned that the Academy runs a lot of charities as they're also a nonprofit themselves and run a bunch of nonprofits. Well, starting in the 90s was some trouble. (laughs) Michael Green was the president of the Academy in 1998, and he and the Academy were called out by the Los Angeles Times. The Times investigated and found that, quote, a key area of the organization has spent less than 10% of every donated dollar on assistance to... In, in unemployed and infirm musicians, a fraction of what the organization spends on administrative expenses. NPR mm. also added that at the time, Green was the highest paid nonprofit executive in the country. While the Times added one of the group's philanthropic arms spent three to four times as much on administration and fundraising as it distributed to the needy. The Times goes on and goes even more in depth if you want to read more in specifics, but here's one favorite standout from it. Green, in 1997, pitched a recording of his own music to record executives whose acts were up for performance slots in the Grammys telecast, often in the course of the meetings about the awards. Oh, my God. The the record was bought by Mercury Records for about $250,000 which Green has pledged to donate his portion of any royalties or profits after expenses to charity. 
That's like that's like another level of like yo listen to my mixtape like, right. Like, like, He's bringing please. it up. Why these people are like, please, can we have our artists play the Grammys and have a millions of people look at them? Yeah, dude, that's insane. I had no idea that was going on. I knew I knew that there was some fishy stuff with the oh, it gets worse. Stuff. Green eventually uh, resigned because of sexual harassment allegations, <laughs> but not without eight million dollars in his settlement in his own settlement from NPR. So he got $8 million to leave. Oh my God. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like this is going to be a current thing so, where I'm like, that's crazy. And then you're like, Oh, oh it gets it worse. Gets worse. <laughs> that's exactly what this next section is. The Grammys <laughs> seem to have changed their tune with the head of the recording Academy, no longer being the highest paid nonprofit executive, according to NPR from 2014, but in their charitable charitable arms have been very radically changed. Uh, from what I've seen, but I'm going to save that because it's kind of out of the scope of my expertise to judge nonprofits. Yeah. Um, the one everyone expects with controversy, which is racial and sexual bias. Now, this is probably huge and arguably the biggest criticism against the Grammys, and this is going to lead probably into my biggest overarching criticism on it and why I think this problem is also even more exacerbated. <laughs> so let's start with some stats. Following Kendrick Lamar's loss to Taylor Swift for Album of the Year in 2016, scholar John Villanova of Lay University addressed the lack of racial equality in the Grammys. Villanova wrote, In the last 10 years, there have been 17 non-white artists nominated for the Grammy Award for Album of the Year. Of those 17, the only winner was Herbie Hancock in 2008. His album was a collection of covers of songs by white folk artist Joni Mitchell. At the time, in 2017, Villanova adds, quote, in Beyonce's case, the numbers are really striking. She is the most Grammy-nominated woman ever, with 62 nominations and 22 wins at the time. But her win rate of 35% is really low. Alison Krauss, the white country singer who has 27 wins for 42 nominations, is almost twice as likely to win when nominated than Beyonce at 64%. There are also notable upsets of wins of categories uh, considered by many out of left field to white artists, such as one Beyonce's loss in 2015 to Beck for album of the year and her subsequent 2017 album loss to Adele. Frank Ocean's Channel Orange losing to Mumford and Sons. <laughs> Kendrick Lamar losing album of the year and best hop hip best hip hop album to Daft Punk and Macklemore in 2014 and his defeat to Taylor Swift in 2016. While also people have considered just straight up occlusion from the big four categories or any category at all, including one Prince's 1999 to Michael Jackson's off the wall and three, the weekends after hours and specifically blinding light this year. Yeah. There is also an accusation of using racialized categories to avoid criticism for the lack of inclusion, such as the R&B and rap categories. As NPR simplifies Villanova's writings, Villanova goes in to explain that the categories beyond the top four, which reflect genre and radio format distinctions, are racially marked. Lemonade, for example, won Best Urban Contemporary Album. She's only won once in a major category in 2009 for Single Ladies. Nearly all of her other 20 gramophones at the time are in the R&B category. That's insane. That's insane because you think of Beyonce as a pop singer. Right. Like, because of how massive she is just in personality and branding and music. Oh, and man, everything. that actually goes perfectly into my next thing. So Tyler, the creator, which we talked about on the regular show, goes into even more in depth in 2020 after winning Best Rap Album and kind of talks about exactly what you're talking about. It sucks that whenever we, and I mean guys that look like me, do anything that's genre bending or anything that's that that's genre bending uh, is put into the rapper urban category. I don't like that urban word. It's just a politically correct way to say the N word to me and adding that when I hear that, I'm just like, why can't we be in pop? Half of me feels like the rap nomination was just a backhanded compliment. Like my little cousin wants to play the game. Like he gives me the unplugged controller so he can shut up and feel good about it. And that's what it felt like a bit. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's a hundred percent. I thought that would hit down on the nail. So after these comments and more blowback, the Grammys actually would stop using the word urban in 2020, although they still use it in Laris. Yeah. uh, which yeah, does I, that, it's the same company, right? Well, Laris, I think Laris is a subsidiary of it, but still, yeah, I don't know why it's cool in Laris, but it, I guess because it's not specifically associated with it. It's associated with, 
it's in a Latin category and not an African American associated category for some people. So that's why I think they try to get away with that. I hate that term. I think it's, yeah, I think it's dumb. as Um, well. So anyway, we're, that we're moving to women in the Grammys and they have pretty much similar accusations of exclusion and use of sexualized categories used to hold women down in 2011 in an effort to slim the 109 categories down. The Grammys decided to overhaul and get rid of many awards, including gender based award titles. For example, best female pop vocal performance and consolidate many awards such as that case into just best pop solo performance which left 78 awards at the time effectively also combating criticism of sectioning off women from main categories into gender specific categories addressing even more in depth the university of southern california's annenberg inclusion initiative found that just nine percent of the 899 people nominated over the previous 2012 to 2018 grammy awards were women and when they announced this four days before the 60th 2018 grammys Stay with me because it's going to circle back, but it's going to be a wild ride. Basically, since the previous head of the Academy, Green, was forced to leave over the charity concerns and sexual harassment allegations, the head of the Recording Academy has not transitioned smoothly since. And so uh, continuing in the climate of coverage about the lack of women in the Grammys, Neil Portnow and 2018, the successor to Green since 2002 decided wisely to say backstage at the 2018 Grammys to reporters on women's inclusion in the Grammys, women, quote, who want to be musicians, who want to be engineers, producers, want to be a part of the industry on the executive level, need to step up. And that went as good as you think it did. (laughs) And he started a firestorm, quote, Grammy, hashtag Grammy so male, exploding as a trending Twitter topic. And many prominent female artists called him out on social media and demanded his resignation. Stepping down in July 2019, his replacement was Deborah Dugan, who made it very clear of her goal of making the Grammys more inclusive, saying, quote, all the issues that Neil had addressed has led us to a larger conversation. And that conversation, of course, is that we need to to have about women and diversity in music. So now Dugan has a very rough road ahead, which I'll tell you right now. As Times writes, Dugan's goals were buoyed by the Recording Academy's first task force on diversity inclusion, which hastily assembled in the wake of the Annenberg 2018 report, which provided the statistic earlier. In December 2019, the task force led by the Times president, Tina Tetchen, filled a 47-page report documenting the representation shortcomings of the organization, including the fact that just 22% of the Grammy voters are female and issued 18 demands for the Academy to meet. Dugan announced that she took up all of them but one. Hmm. Dugan then would clash primarily with two people. Joel Katz, a a powerful industry lawyer who represents the Grammys, and Claudia Little, Portnow's former assistant. Dugan claims Katz had tried to kiss her, and Katz denies this. And then Little, Dugan's then-assistant who worked at the Academy for 19 years, quote, was not up to the task of being an assistant, according to Dugan, which my favorite quote, quote, that she didn't know how to use an Outlook calendar and receive complaints about her conduct. (laughs) Ten days... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like i mean it's this is like this is like literally watching the office honestly <laughs> 10 days before the 2020 ceremony the board of trustees put dugan on administrative leave mm. for quote former allegation of misconduct by a senior female member of the recording academy and which was little <laughs> and her assistant for creating a hostile work environment, leaving Harry Mason jr. Who is already the national chair of trustees, the interim head of the recording Academy, which he is still both today. Now important Dugan claims that this was a smokescreen for the real reason being a note that she wrote in December of 2019 to HR in the note. She recounted Katz's alleged harassment and claims that board members approved payments to themselves and were plagued by conflicts of interest. She also wrote that board now had been accused of rape by a female recording artist and that Dugan had only learned about that after she agreed to be CEO, which Portnow denies and claims he has been exonerated. 
In a very public online back and forth, Dugan revealed some hard accusations, including the whole situation was, quote, all made possible by the boys club mentality and approach to governance. Dugan says she was asked to sign her name on misleading tax documents and that other high ranking women at the academy had been harassed and silenced and that the organization had tried to make her hire Portnow as a consultant for $750,000 following his dismissal. Oh, my God, man. For which the Academy fired back again, repeating that Dugan had caused an extremely terrible and hostile work environment and claims that she refused to leave until she received a $22 million payout, emphasizing their nonprofit status. The end of Dugan's story leads into the last big criticism. (laughs) Dugan went to claim that, quote, the board members use shadowy, unsupervised nomination review committees as an opportunity to push forward artists whom they have relationships. For example, she said that in the race for 2019 song of the year, an artist who initially ranked 18 out of 20 in the category gained a nomination because they only rep- they were only represented by a member of the board, but they were also sitting on the nomination committee itself. Oh my God. <laughs> Which the Academy has refuted, adding that while artists may serve on a committee in which they have received a nomination, they are not allowed to vote in the category. (laughs) To address the media storm on the evening of January 23rd, 2020, the Recording Academy Task Force on Diversity and Inclusion weighed in to express disappointment and demands with changes from the Academy, including the appointment of a diversity inclusion officer. We are deeply disappointed at the level of commitment by some of the Academy's leadership in affecting the kind of real and constructive change presented in our report. The statement read, these are the changes that need to be made at the highest levels and institutionalized so they outlast any single leader. Completely agree. Eventually, Dugan would be formally fired with no settlement. March 2nd, 2020. A public letter written by the organization's executive committee said that the two independent investigators uh, investigations were carried out involving 37 witnesses in which Dugan was found to have, quote, consistent management deficiencies and failures, and no specifics were provided. With Dugan capping the saga, saying, is anyone surprised that it, uh, that it per- well, I can't say that, that I had investigations that did not include interviewing me or addressing the greater claims of conflicts of interest and voting irregularities. I will continue to work to hold accountable those who continue to self deal, taint the Grammy voting process and discriminate against women and people of color. Artists deserve better. And Dugan's story highlights many problems that I've addressed, but one that I feel is the root of all their problems and a lot of them and makes it way worse is the voting and the lack of transparency around it. Yes. Now, a lot, some of this is tangent, like more my personal opinion, but I'm spraying some things in there. Now, the Grammys have tried to combat a lot of accusations of insider benefiting, but it seems to be an endless problem that just is expanded upon due to the lack of transparency. Again, we have no idea unless they self-identify from which I've researched seems to be discouraged who the voting member committee members are basically. And the Academy has tried recently to deter people who seem to approve nominations that benefit them directly after many claims that this could happen in 2020. So hopefully some positive change here. They have revised their rules and basically to make it short, they, they say that if you're in a committee you ha- at the time of an invitation to participate on a nomination review committee, you have to put out a conflict of interest disclosure form and each person invited to be a member of the committee must disclose to the best of their knowledge, whether in connection without any re- with any recording that's entered into the current Grammy awards, if they have a conflict of interest, basically to keep it short. Yeah. So either family wise, you could make money off of it. And then the most important, I think at the end is any other co- conflict of interest acted or perceived. So, mm. uh, before that, would Joe laugh at this? You would just simply leave the room if you were on the committee for the voting. <laughs> <laughs> so you could have been campaigning the whole time to all your committee just members hanging out. And then at the end you're like, peace dog, you know, like, <laughs> so even researching this myself, I have to say the Academy and the Grammys in my personal opinion, seem to have made an effort to not be as transparent as possible with how the organization has been run and how the voting process works. Although they have, made many changes to try to stop this, especially in 2020. Like I, they've put their official rule book on their website and have stricter nomination committee term limits and more. 
Uh, now they probably are going to also counter me with, they have graphics and written processes on their website. But in my opinion, the voting process described very vaguely and terse, for instance, how the rules and categories are are decided is described in one simple sentence on their website, just saying rules are reviewed and updated. The information (laughs) I provided about how the board of trustees approves them. There's a committee that provides rule changes. I had to learn by talking to an Academy member. (laughs) (laughs) And then the history of its formation, the organization itself is also very little and vague. For instance, again, I can't even figure out when they stopped using Neris and they just went full recording Academy and why or what or anything. Now I'm not too obtuse. If everything was so public, they would be accosted for every decision they make when it comes to who is nominated, who isn't and like who decides what is nominated and who wins. But at the same time, it comes as a shock to most people that 17 categories, including, again, general field rock and rap, are decided just by a committee in the final selection of nominees. But to be fair, they are voted on by thousands of members. But it does beg the question, who has the power to basically help make an important steroid to an artist's career by winning a category? Yeah. Um, In short, in researching this, the Academy seems purposely vague, basically. And it's a lot of marginalized groups struggle to be a part of the Academy and to basically try to enact change in that and to help with the bias. And I've seen a lot of people and talk to people and they say, if the Academy is so bad, then why don't you just join it and fix your, you know, fix it from the inside, your perspective. If you feel your John, like your genre, your race, your sex, whatever isn't there. And I just have to counter that that is fair, but like the Academy doesn't seem very inviting. And yeah. worse, these groups say they can't seem or seem first out forced out. Like the story of Dugan that I just read, uh, and like the worst part about it is they're kind of in a catch 22. In my opinion, the more open they are, the more they are open to criticism directly at individuals. Some rightly so about people maybe being biased or racist or sexist, but at the same time, can you imagine a whole fan base coming after you because you thought this album generally wasn't good enough to win a Grammy and to have that, you know, award? Yeah. I mean, accountability is important, right? I, I, I see it from, from both sides as well. But I, you know, if it's, if you come out with the public and the people are saying, Hey, you're kind of running this like a locker room. Like maybe we should, we should actually run it like a business (laughs) or like an actual, like academic structure type of thing. Uh, well, okay. I guess, I guess there's going to be some criticism there, right? It'd be very different if the only female head of the recording Academy didn't basically get taken down in about three minutes. So, you know, that's also the other thing with it. Um, again, it's all, you know, one side says this, one side says this, but I mean, there's some proof in that. Um, now let's go to today. The next Grammys are slated for March 14th of 2021 and its relevance is, uh, still there, but like, it's kind of waning in my opinion. Just, this is more tangential. I, in my opinion, with a lot of younger music fans and artists who seem to not care for it as much or not want to support it, but they hope for change. Uh, this year actually has been very huge uh, because we were seeing, for instance, the first all-female fronted rock nominee category completely and the first year that the Academy's insider rule changes will be in play. But the other hurdle, along with the continuing controversies I just listed, will be the in-person part at the Staples Center with COVID-19 and con- with the constraints and safety concerns it brings with it. Now, moving into more detail about that, the 2021 Grammys were actually originally scheduled for January, as they normally are, but because of the increase of COVID cases, especially in L.A., uh, notably, the Grammys basically had to move. And so they moved it back two months, and they're actually going to be outside the Staples Center. They're not going to be inside it. It'll take place around it. There's going to be no audience, and there's only going to be a few media personnel to have physical attendance, according to Variety. Mm. So the Grammys also if are known for their live performances. And so the question has been like, what, what are those going to look like? But they've been extremely hush hush. And the only things I could find out about it are first time Grammy executive producer, Ben Wils- uh, Winston said, I'm looking to do something quite exciting with the independent venues, supporting them and putting a spotlight on them. It's been a really tough year referencing the hundreds of independent concert rooms that have been devastated by the pandemic and will be receiving $10 billion in aid due to the Save Our Stages Act. While Mason, the head of the Recording Academy, was hesitant to address the issue with speaking with Variety last month. It's hard to say at this point, honestly, but I know there are conversations about supporting independent venues in some capacity. What could this mean? It might be either we could see, you know, the Grammys at multiple venues 
Or we might be able to see the first time since 1971 the return of pre-recorded Grammy performances. Yeah. Which would be very interesting, especially with the modern technology we have now. Yeah. I'd so, say logistically that's probably the the most yeah. likely to happen. I think it depends. So I'm going to open up the floor now, Joe. Let's talk about this year's Grammys first. So I think it's going to be very interesting because I want... I really like the live factor and the thing we've talked about the podcast before is I like that everyone kind of has a level playing field. Like you're, you have your team obviously and one team could be like more experienced than the other or whatever, but you're forced into one place usually. Yeah. And to, you have to figure out what you do with the space. And I think for me, that's kind of magical because my thing with it is that if it's pre-recorded, then like obviously if it's pre-recorded, everything's going to be fixed about it. There's no mess ups. There's no live aspect to it. It's going to look live. It's not going to be live if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing with it is what's the difference between this and just kind of like a, I, I how are people going to take it? Because the, here's my question. What's going to be the difference between me as an artist from doing a music video in this almost? Cause it's going to seem like almost like music video esque if they don't, emphasize that it's live but i don't want it to be fake live you know what i mean yeah i mean i think uh we've seen with the vmas that doing pre-recorded um semi-live a lot of the pre-recorded stuff i i think the audience watching inter the audience that isn't there the the non-live audience which is obviously there's going to be no live audience i don't think they really care to be honest with you as long as it's a it's a really engaging performance uh, the energy's there. I think that's that's super uh, important, and I think it's what people are looking for. Now, when it's talking about uh, the historic nature of the Grammys and having all of these people in the same room, I don't think you're ever going to replicate that like through a computer. Right. right. Like, I mean, you can like maybe maybe years from now, VR will get like crazy insane right. where you could. But like, I, th- I think... At this point, in this moment, this year, I don't think you could replicate that. And I think, you know, when the pandemic's over, uh, I think people are going to, the Grammys are going to go back to having one venue, one people around, because it's it's not only for the viewers at home. Right. It's for the artists. It's for the, it's for the industry professionals, it's for everyone to come together. Uh, and you have a bunch of people just in the same space able to network, to talk to each other, right. to create things, to party, to, you know, do their thing and just be human for a while. So I think I think that's the thing people are going to miss the most, especially people who are involved in the Grammys. Um, now, when it comes to the audience, I don't think it's going to affect it that much unless it is a just terrible quality performances, which I, you know, you, you don't really expect with the Grammys. Right. I mean, this is like, this is, you know, there's a lot of eyes on you. This is kind of, it's kind of shown for the Grammys that this is supposed to be like you at your pinnacle, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, it's almost like you're begging the question of the audience. It's like when you play live at the Grammys, and especially if you're already nominated for one, it's like one of those things where you're like, this is the reason why I'm nominated because I'm this, you know what I mean? It's almost like you're proving your thing other than listening to the record. Yeah, Um, exactly. And and I'd also like to point out, uh, on the pre-recorded front, uh, even during a regular Grammy season, there is a lot of pre-recorded content mm-hmm. that looks like it's live. Right. So I, I would just like to point that out. Like that is, there's a lot of pre-recorded stuff. That's I agree. Yeah, I, I so. think so too. I just think that when you, when you open the bar of people knowing that this is pre-recorded, or something like that. It's a completely different thing than if you were trying to fake, you know, it being live. And so I, I guess for me, it's, I've talked about this on the regular show is I just kind of don't want to lose that live aspect of live video performance. Cause yeah. I feel like it's very few and far between now other than a live stream. And I feel like that's a different environment than when you actually have like a full camera crew TV style doing it. I but, agree. I think, I think a lot of live, I think having those second takes does do a difference. Like it, it, oh, it absolutely does. does. Just as someone who has recorded live sessions and has uh, helped to produce live sessions and stuff, a lot of those things, I mean, sometimes it's like the eighth take that right. you're using. And there is a ton of production elements behind the scenes and and mastering techniques and stuff like that that are going into it. But I, I was going to say, I will cap this on before we go to the next thing, is that it's different 
but it can be different positively and negatively. Exactly. Sometimes yeah. I think it's cool. Like I think the the late night stuff, the pre-recorded late night stuff that they've been doing this year, mm-hmm. I think that for that format, for that show, I think it's really cool actually. So let's move on. So about sexism, racism, and the voting process and just controversies in general, how do we, how do we think these uh, how do we think we're doing i mean it's hard to it's hard to say because they're so non-transparent as, it, as you said we haven't seen the implications of of this year's winnings and like if this is a true thing i mean a lot of people are still upset over the weekend rightfully so mm-hmm. um and i i think it it is you can't see the future right now or like really see into this organization because they are refusing to let you see into it right uh, and you have to take that into consideration we don't know all the behind the scenes stuff we don't know a lot of things i've talked to grammy voters to you've talked to grammy people who who don't know a lot of what goes on either it's right. very closed doors very you know the the need to know people are are in the need to know um, I guess but I, I, I would like to to say that I'm hopeful that it's going to get better and I'm hopeful that inclusion happens and I'm hopeful that we actually start realizing, hey, maybe we should change the wording around to this and maybe we should not just lock this into this looks one like there's genre. eyes actually looking for this in the organization. Exactly. Yeah. And that's important. But looking through the history that you've just laid out and the the insane amount of scandal that have come out of the Grammys, I am pessimistic as well in a lot of ways. I think, yeah, I, I really do think that the transparency is probably the biggest thing that leads to a lot of these problems as well. Because I, I one, I, I think this goes into my main thing is there's a huge battle between who decides who gets a Grammys because like who gets a Grammy? Because I think at the same time I can respect industry people who really know what they're talking about. Like I I listed the credentials. I think if you had those credentials, yeah, that's good enough to vote in it. And then like you have to be around other music industry professionals. And I would assume and hope that when they're at meetings and they choose who gets to go to committees, you know, they go, Oh, this guy's been working. I don't know. in jazz for 30 years, he should be on the committee. You know what I mean? And that's how I hope it is. And, but the thing is, is with that, the lack of transparency, it's really hard to be like, I have to, you know, from the general public's perspective, because I've been researching this, I just had to talk to people and they would tell me, yeah, it's pretty good on that, but I don't know for sure. You know what I mean? And so that's kind of the thing that I think, it's a bigger question of, well, if we're supposed to get people who are really respected in their respective fields, I get that. That seems nice. But at the same time, it's like, could the general public decide this? Do we want that though? Because I don't, you know, in my personal opinion, you can't, the general public's view of music and the industry professional's view on music are very different. I feel yeah. like the industry professional might have somebody who's very obscure. You've never heard of who's doing new things and they're going to be the people to bring like, for instance, in these genres that aren't like the big four, like up into speed, especially like jazz and other, like not, sad, sad to say rock now, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where people are like, Oh, I've never heard of this. And they go, yeah, they're not that big of a band. And so like we, they got nominated and me as a committee member, I went, yeah, we're going to put them in here cause they're culturally important. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, what are they missing that the general public's missing? Exactly. And, uh, I, I think you, you hit it on the nail there just with I think time is a huge implication too of like how the Grammys are going to shift and who who their audience is now right I think they're going to have a couple I think in the next 10 years it's going to be very important for the Grammys to figure out how they are going to transition especially post COVID and like what they're doing because again like right now it's kind of calm and it hasn't been this way since Port, Port Now went away for two years ago. So, like, that's what I'm saying. It's it's We're kind of in a calm period, and they're going to need a new president eventually. Or I don't know if Harry Mason Jr. will eventually become it and leave the trustees. I have no idea. But, like, we're in a, like, you know, we're in a holding pattern right now for the Grammys, in my opinion. And this is going to be very divisive, especially with a lot of other music video and, like, music-forward award shows in there. I think it's going to be a power grab to be honest with you in mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff. Who's going to, who's going to get the audience who, and who's going to update award shows to be more digestible for the yeah, internet. Exactly. And, um, 
Two, I would like to say uh, on the technology front, uh, if we're just looking at the Grammys themselves, primarily throughout the history, they've been a more visual medium. medium. Mm-hmm. And it's been television. Right. And now, as we all know, streaming is king now. And I don't know if you've tried to get anything of CBS on streaming, but it's very hard. <laughs> a right. lot of the you got to think of their, you got to think who they're, you know, aligned with too. They have CBS has this contract till 2026. Yeah. Are but it'd be the, like, it's only on all access CBS, all access. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, there is that bump every year of, of album sales of like people getting that's in the, front. the thing, even with Phoebe Bridgers getting announced that she was having, she was getting a Grammy. That's the thing with it. A huge that's the big, like, and I said the Grammys are full of catch 22s. It's like, People want more transparency. Well, we have to protect these people. Uh, people want to be more involved with it. Well, we're. The, I've talked to some Grammy people. They say there's not enough people involved that want to be in it. And then the same thing with this. You know what I mean? It's like everybody everybody I talk to is really, yeah, Grammys suck. I hate the Grammys. But then we look at the people get nominated or get album of the year and they're sales skyrocket you know every what I mean? time that's what they put on all the merch that's what they put on the advertising you know well, grammy winner grammy nom yeah you know? and at the same time too if we change the grammys let's say we get everything we wanted this year all of the list we got changed there's still going to be people that are like this doesn't fit in oh this yeah category. the list the list won't work you know it's they're definitely it's like one of those things where i think the grammys do not get me wrong in this need to be held more accountable they need to have more transparency in my opinion but I don't think they should be an open book. You know, yeah. I don't think it should be like, this is the guy. And then like, you know, their fandom gets really mad at this guy doxed. and hazes this guy. You know, Yeah, I mean? exactly. So, I think the security thing needs to be solid as well. But and I'm I think the with, transparency of how the machine works needs to be. I would love to see, and I, if you're listening, Grammy people, come up with a nice little graphic video for people to understand. And I want you to go through the whole thing and just be <laughs> like, this is what I'm not like literally what I did audio wise. Just do it for the whole organization. I guarantee you it'll stop a lot of people from being like, how does this work? It's, and then immediately going to, Oh, everybody was underground. But you know, that's how it works though, is people campaign in there for people. They know, hopefully the conflict of interest. Yeah. All right. Well, let me leave you with this thought. The Grammys have been a force to help point out the success and prowess of many musicians, big and small. A Grammy win or nom turns people's ears to your music and makes people pay attention as you have, quote unquote, the industry picking it and saying to the world, this is among or is the best music of the year. But are all the musicians and music professionals allowed to be a part equally in this decision? It begs the question, who has been held out of being put on the pedestal to the public because of the way they look, and vice versa? Who's been put on the pedestal because of the way they look? And more important, should it be expected you have to play the game by having people on the inside campaign for you because there's always going to be someone doing that? Remember, always, the Grammys at its core was started by music professionals to help spotlight musicians to the public because these musicians deserve recognition, but importantly, to create advertising and press that leads to sales. This is the line for the Grammys, and the Grammys will walk for the future. Where they sway on one side of the line or the other, now that is the challenge. Thanks for listening to that episode of our Deep Cut series. We're definitely going to be doing more of these every month. And so you can check out when we're going to be announcing on our socials at The Biz Tape everywhere. You can also check out our weekly show, The Biz Tape, streaming everywhere. Thanks for listening. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steel every Thursday. Already a know. podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.